0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Again, the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the one who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. In the movie The Big Short, through some seriously good creative writing, we're given a front-row seat to the complex way in which the housing market crashed in 2008. And if you've seen the film, you know that the thing that comes across so clearly throughout the movie and all of the various characters is that there is something... (laughs) that has caught the powers of each of their imaginations at some point, and many of them were willing to overlook or deny or turn a blind eye to massive amounts of risky, bad, and sometimes illegal financial behavior because they were so set on achieving the good life that their imagination had fixed upon. The most obvious characters in the movie are the two mortgage brokers in Miami. Have you guys seen, you know what I'm talking about? Remember those guys in power suits with, like, the gleamy white smiles? They're bragging about approving mortgages for people who could not possibly pay them. And one of the other characters is actually confused. He pulls his team over and says, why are they admitting all of the wrongdoing that they've been doing? And his friends are like, they're not admitting anything. They're bragging. They're preying on poor people, but the response is, well, I've got a boat and an expensive car now. Their imagination has been captured by greed, and so the only magnetic north drawing their moral compass became, can I make money doing this? That's really the only question that they serve to ask themselves. Now, most of us probably aren't nearly as obvious as those two characters, but all of us have had our imagination captured at some point in our lives by some version of what a good and meaningful life is. Some of us are driven by a need for security or acceptance or adrenaline or whatever the case may be, and it's a little cliche, but only because it's so true. If you want to know what you're really living for, look at your calendar and your checkbook. Those two things will give you a pretty good barometer. Now, the characters in our parable this evening have had their imaginations captured as well, and the results are obvious. More on that in a moment. This section of Matthew that we've been working through as we end the liturgical year is often referred to as the parables of judgment. And in quick-fire succession, Jesus is working to disabuse us of what St. Augustine called a perverse hope, this idea that, that we can just sort of do and be and think whatever we want and everything will be fine. And so throughout all of these parables, we're brought face-to-face with characters who are disabused of that notion pretty quickly there's the wedding guest without wedding attire who's removed from the feast there's the wicked servant who when he sees his master's return is delayed begins to get drunk with the luscious and beat his fellow servants and the master we're we're told will come on a day when that bad servant does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth Last week, we heard of the ten bridesmaids, five of whom were wise, five foolish. The foolish five failed to live a life of charity, doing the Father's will, and so were shut out of the wedding feast. And with our parable this evening, the third servant is removed from the Master's presence. But as with all of those other parables, the first thing to notice in the parable before us this evening is, once again, grace. Grace. Each character in all of these parables is given something, not because they deserve it, but because God is good. The master is good and gracious. They're given an invitation to the wedding, a position of authority, a lamp, a talent. There are two things to be learned from this. The first is that existence itself is a gift from God. No one consulted you before you were born. You made no choices to get here. To this thing that we call life. You did no work. It was just thrust upon you. Existence itself is a gift from God, and more specifically, those of you that are in Christ through faith and baptism have already been given everything you need in Christ to live the life he's called you to live. This is what grace is. He has given you everything you need to live your life in him. None of these parables of judgment, no matter how it may seem or how our own Christian subculture may have twisted them, none of them are about how hard it is to claw our way into God's favor. Rather, they are about how we are to respond after having been shown God's favor. Right? It's a very key difference. The parable before us shows us just such radical generosity. These bags of gold are what in the original text is called a talent— five talents, two talents, one talent for each of the servants, was basically a lifetime's wages for the average worker. So, so like, if a little kid were writing this today, they would say, and the first guy got, like, a bajillion dollars, and the next guy got, like, a million dollars, right? It's just this insane amount of money. As the parable shows, not every follower is given the exact same gifts, but every follower is expected to make good use of what they've been given. And I think at the very least, what we can see here is is what Jesus eventually tells St. Peter on the beach at the end of John's gospel, right? Whatever we've been given, the gift requires that we look with gratitude toward the gift giver rather than in jealousy toward our own fellow recipients. Remember when, when Peter's on the beach with Jesus and he keeps saying, what about him? What about him? And Jesus says, what about him? You follow me. Not everyone gets given the same exact gift, But the point is not to do comparison toward the side, it's to look back in gratitude toward God. I want to quickly look at the differences between the first and the third servants and attempt to understand what their imaginations have been captured by and how the results differed. I think the language used here in describing these two people is really instructive, because the first servant, we're told, immediately moved out and went to work and won more talents— there are all these active verbs, these sort of big movement verbs. The third servant, though, we're told, went away, dug a hole, and hid the money that he was given to work with. The first has an energy and a focus to him that is utterly lacking in the third. As for the talents, those bags of gold, I don't think we should move too quickly away from the surface of meaning here to try to get at the allegory, Right? God has indeed given each of us money. And as Jesus makes very clear throughout his ministry, the way that we use our money is directly tied to and revelatory of our discipleship. And so at a very basic surface level, this parable could be read as God has given each of us a certain amount of wealth. Not all of us have the same amount, for sure. Some of us may have next to nothing compared to somebody else, but it still is God's generosity toward us, and we have a responsibility to use that well. Now, beyond money, the talent, this this bag of gold in the parable, I would say is whatever the Lord has given you now and will ask about later. Later. Whatever the Lord has given you now and will ask about later, this could include skills, gifts, opportunities, relationships. It definitely includes your participation in Christ, your knowledge of the good news of the gospel. Last week, the parable hinged on oil, which is often associated with the Holy Spirit and therefore the fruit of the Spirit, right? Doing works of charity. This week, the parable hinges on treasure, which is Christ, the word of the gospel, which each of you have been given. The first servant has had his imagination captured by this very treasure, by a God of mercy and grace who longs to see his image bearers thrive in freedom rather than waste away in the prison of sin and fear. The first servant has had his imagination captured by the creator God, the one who speaks things into being, things as tiny as water bears and as massive as the Himalayans, this servant's imagination has been shaped by the generosity of a God who shares the gift of beingness. you imagine? The very thing that all of us take for granted is the greatest gift of all time. God is the only being who exists that does not need any other being to exist for him to have fullness. And yet he decided to share the gift of existence with us. That's what this servant's imagination has been drawn by and shaped by. And because of that, he's drawn toward immediate, focused activity because he is convinced that God is a giver of good gifts and that God will be filled with joy at this servant's work. The third servant I've taken to calling the wet blanket banker. And he has had his imagination captured by a lie. And the dialogue here is important because in comes the third servant. Sir, here is your money. I've kept it in my wet blanket bank because, well, I was afraid of you. I know that you're a hard man and you take out what you don't put in and you reap where you did not sow. And the master responds with what I'm pretty convinced is not just a straightforward response but actually burning sarcasm. Really? You seem to know a lot about me. I'm a hard man, am I? I get out what I don't put in, do I? I reap what I don't sow. Interesting ideas. Out of curiosity, if that's how you feel about me, if that's what you know about me, why didn't you act accordingly and at least put the money in the bank where it could get some interest? And then the master commands that his money be taken from him and given to the guy with the ten bags of gold and has the worthless, quote, worthless servant thrown Into the outer darkness. Now, if you're like me, you read this story and you think, well, contestant number three was kind of right, wasn't he? The master is a hard man, the kind of boss we should all be afraid of, and what's more, he seems unpredictable. The first two guys get commended, and the guy with the most gets given more, and then this last guy gets blisters on his ears. What's going on here? Well, if you'll allow me, I'd like to start with a premise and then work our way back through this strange conundrum. And the premise is this The third servant is condemned by his own fear of the master. And if fear of the master is what is being condemned in this parable, then our telling of it should not cause us to be afraid of the master. Right? The servant is being condemned because he lived in fear of the master. So however however we decide to tell this parable to ourselves, it should not lead us down toward that same fear, which would result in the same kind of condemnation. The error of the third servant was in his assumption that the master was a hard, mean, angry man who would come down on him if he did the wrong thing with his bag of money. And so what our translators have tried to do, and what I've tried to do in translating the master's condemning words to the third servant is to get across the fact that the master is being rather sarcastic. He's not agreeing with the servant's assessment of himself. Rather, he's basically giving the servant a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is the sort of God that you want to worship. Go find him. What we're hearing from Jesus is that the third servant's loyalty runs only as deep as his fear. The third servant has no love or affection toward the Master. He has no faith or trust in the Master. His imagination has been captured by something other than the true God. And it has propelled him to make all of the life decisions that he has made because he has been living, believing in a lie. So Jesus' critique here is a critique that I, I think is heating up at our heels because it is so frighteningly easy for us to know about God, to learn about God, to talk about God, to sing about God, to write about God, and to not really trust God. To not really believe that he has our goodness in mind, that he cares for us and longs for us as a gentle father. The third servant was a theologian, but he was a bad one. He reasoned with himself about who God is and allowed his reasoning to eclipse faith. And the relationship of faith is not a relationship of your brain to a set of ideas, okay? If you grew up in the church, and especially if you grew up somewhere in, in, within the label of evangelicalism, we're starting to sort of circle toward the center of the target which is to say that the tradition that a good amount of us come from, there is this tendency to define faith as correct thinking. As long as you can check all the right doctrinal ideas in your mind, then that's it. And it becomes this completely internalized, theoretical way to be a Christian. But when Scripture talks about faith, it is always referring to a trust that gets acted out in the body. It's almost as if this trust requires a sense memory, and the language of that sense memory is love. And that's why we do the things that we do every week. It's a way of us acting out our love toward God in response to his great love toward us so that it inscribes in our bodies a sense memory that will lead to trust, right? Trust, not just right thinking a trust that actually gets lived out. The relationship of faith is not a relationship of your brain to a set of ideas. It is a relationship of you as an embodied person to Christ, our generous and gracious and kind King, which is to say it is a relationship of love, wherein God, who is love, comes and dwells in us and we in him. And as St. John wrote... To the churches, perfect love casts out fear. Oh, that we might become a community that is filled perfectly with love so that we would cast out fear from our midst and serve the true, good, kind, and generous God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.